You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 14th of February 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, a British volunteer for Islamic State says she wants to come home. Should she have the option? My guests Stephanie Bolzen and Ivor Gaber will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including a Valentine's Day lawsuit to persuade Japan to cease dragging its heels on same-sex marriage, new ideas for rescuing old media, and the ongoing national nervous breakdown known as Brexit. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Stephanie Bolson, London correspondent for Die Welt, and Ivor Gaber, Professor of Political Journalism at the University of Sussex. Welcome both. And we will start here in the UK, where authorities are grappling with the idea that if there's anything more vexing than your citizens running away to join Islamic State, it's the same citizens wanting to come home again. At issue is the case of Shamima Begum, who decamped East London for Islamic State's fiefdom in Syria four years ago when she was 15, now 19 and pregnant and resident in a refugee camp near Al Hall in Syria's northeast, she was found by Times correspondent Anthony Lloyd. Ms Begum has said she wants to have her baby in the UK. Her two other children have died in Syria. She has also, however, made some disconcertingly equivocal statements about the jihad she joined. Um... Either it's it, it is a strange one. I I have an instinctive tendency in this, as in all things, to the you made your bed lie in it um, analysis. But it, it, should that be tempered by the fact that she was a child uh, when she took it into her head to go and do this? It should, and also you know the fact that she's had two children, two babies die in the last few months, and she's now nine months pregnant with a third and living in a refugee camp in dreadful conditions and understandably as a mother let's leave the jihadist aside for a moment is desperate that this baby should live in those circumstances um, it's pretty difficult to say no let her rot Um, I would even though the British government had said oh we have no consular services in Syria it's far too dangerous I think uh, efforts should be made to bring her back to enable her to have her baby and to face any charges that um, we have evidence for that she should be um, held responsible for. Just to follow that up quickly, Ivy, you're quite right in pointing out that the British government have said, and it is true, that they cannot provide any consular assistance in Syria because there is no British diplomatic presence in Syria. Are you suggesting that resources and personnel should be spent and indeed risked to go and get her? No, I I am assuming that she is under the control of the the Kurdish-led Syrian rebels who we do have informal relations with. Um, We have British um, SAS forces are helping them in their fight against ISIS and other jihadist groups. So I'm suggesting that informal links be made with the... I'm just trying to remember the name of the army. The Syrian Liberation Front, I think they are... Um, it should be done through the Kurds. Uh, Stephanie, what do you think? Uh, Is there a case for a government to say to one of its citizens, even a citizen in the the straightened circumstances that Ms Begum is in, tough luck, you made your decision? 
Well, she she indeed did make a decision back in 2015 when she told her parents uh, with her two she was going to uh, I don't I think she said I'm mean, we're going to the cinema and then actually there were all these CCTV pictures of her and her two friends going through Gatwick going through security and uh, boarding a plane to Turkey and then later on there were also uh, pictures where she was seen crossing the border from Turkey into Syria so that was a very deliberate act by a 15 year old and of course you it, it's a very it's a very difficult question i mean she was 15 she knew what she was doing yes but she didn't know the the dimension of where what she was getting into now the interview um that the times uh, reported did with her was quite shocking because she talked about she had seen uh beheaded bodies she had seen actually hats in the bins and she didn't care much about it she was not very impressed about it she didn't show any remorse so she definitely has been terribly brainwashed but again you could um, also if you're being charitable suggest that she's been traumatized beyond imagining as well well whatever she she was i think she she definitely needs help and she definitely needs another chance um she is a british citizen so she's entitled to come back to this country um and but of course it will be difficult i could imagine that there will be now some efforts made to get her out of that refugee camp probably or very likely not by the british state but it might be by others um, and if she is to come back i agree she should uh, go on on trial it should be seen whether she committed any crimes of course as well but i think she's still even though she's 19 she is in a way she's a child and she she really deserves another chance uh, sorry i was just to say i was amazed to read in that brilliant piece of journalism in the times the extent of her commitment her husband she said has was falsely accused she says falsely accused of espionage was tortured for six months and yet she's still supporting isis that is pretty amazing isn't it it's 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 of a piece i think with adherence to to various cults of various sorts uh, over the years either there is a a precedent of sorts for this situation a Tarina Shaquille returned from Islamic State in 2012 and got and got six years so there is a a precedent for accepting them back into the country putting them on trial etc but of course the problem for the British government is if if they make efforts if they bring this girl back um, then the question arises, why shouldn't they accept the, the two men known as the Beatles, um, horrendous murderers, if we're to believe the reports, who the British government have removed the nationality from, and the latest news is that they're going to be sent to trial in America. But why should we make one rule for a pregnant girl and a different rule for two men who aren't, obviously aren't pregnant? I mean, that does seem to me a slight problematic judgment. Uh, Stephanie, as, as a general rule, or is there a general rule might be the better question, does a given state, if we remove it into the abstract from the specifics of this situation, does any state owe anything to a citizen that takes up arms against it? Oh, that's a very, oh, that's a very complex question. Um, I, I do think that still, if you are the citizen of a country, there is a certain duty of care is probably too too strong a word but there is you, you are entitled at least to be treated in the institutional frameworks of your country of origin i think that that should be there should be a certain assurance of that but of course if you go abroad and then you fight with a terrorist organization if you should then be entitled to the same that a, a citizen obeying the laws back in your country has that's of course it's questionable but and, and i also agree it's different because she is pregnant she's a woman she's a girl she has lost two children as a mother myself, I really feel strongly for her and I can't avoid it. But you are right. She can't be treated better than others in the same situation. 
Well, moving along then, uh, happy Valentine's Day to all our listeners, but especially so to the 13 LGBT couples who decided to spend Valentine's Day filing lawsuits against the government of Japan, demanding the legal recognition of same-sex marriages. Japanese law is unclear on the subject. Though no laws specifically prohibit it, it has been the habit of governments to interpret Japan's constitution as prohibiting such unions. Article 24 makes a reference to marriage involving the consent of both sexes. Japan's Prime Minister, Shinzo Abe was probably not wrong when he said in 2015 that the question simply hadn't occurred to those who drafted the constitution, but get with the program already. Um, Stephanie, is is Japan looking increasingly weird among developed democracies by being reluctant on this? Yes, it definitely does. I mean, it's uh, Japan obviously is one of the countries that from the so-called West we look at and find it pretty similarly because of the economy, mm-hmm. because of the uh, openness, the outreach, the international obligations. Um, but finding a country in the 21st century that still is so... Uh, categorically against gay marriage is really irritating, and I, I think uh, I think it's it's something. Yes, I, I find this. I find this. I mean, for us, it's now whether in Germany or in the UK, gay, gay marriage is something completely normal. It's not even questioned by most people. Okay, I might be in the liberal bubble here, but it's it's something that um, I find a weakness actually of a society if they cannot get their head around it. Ir- irritating is a good word. But it, I mean, I do think you are not appreciating. But not, I'm not saying you're irritating, not appreciating just what a traditional and formal society Japan is. I don't know Japan. I mean, I when I, Japan. I've, I've visited, it's true it's the only country in the G7 that doesn't recognise gay marriage, but it's the only country like Japan. It is so traditional. I remember c- creating a huge faux pas when I um, get, bought a present for my host. It was a business trip. And on the aeroplane, I bunged it in a thing, the wrapping paper tour so i gave them the present without the wrapping paper and this was an incredible and we lost the business as a result an incredible snub so japan is different um and it's even different to um, more westernized countries in asia that don't recognize gay marriage um so i do I, i'm not surprised by this in fact i would have been surprised the other way i mean stephanie is there an argument that we kind of or can forget in in countries which which have got with the program on this we forget how fast this has all happened. Netherlands was the first country to recognise same-sex marriages as recently as 2001. Uh, It's now up to 28 countries, which I would certainly agree is not nearly enough. But nonetheless, it has happened quickly. Can can you extend countries some leeway for not having quite caught up? Well, I mean, if you look at Europe, to be fair, it's actually in some countries it's going the opposite. If you whether you take uh, gay marriage or you take uh, abortion rights now, of course, like Ireland is, is Ireland very much has been now on the forefront of liberalising uh, the rights for gay marriage and for abortion. But then, if you look further east in in Europe, for example, in Poland, there are now more crimes against gay people. There is far more resistance against gay marriage than there was before. So actually, it's it's true, very traditional or more say less less if you go to Poland it's a far less mono ethnic society as well and um, I remember having a, a talk with a with an academic in, in Warsaw some, some years ago about actually the German refugee crisis and why Poland did not want to take in any Muslim refugees and I, I must admit I forgot that these are really different societies it's a neighboring country of Germany but culturally it's still very different 
Hey, Ivor, the, the, a related story this week uh, in the in the field, literally of sport, was the uh, the calling out by a West Indian cricketer, uh, Shannon Gabriel, by England's captain Joe Root. Uh, Shannon Gabriel had subjected Joe Root to a a volley of homophobic abuse, and Joe Root replied by saying that. Well, basically by saying quite correctly that none of that really qualified as insulting, uh, following which uh, Shannon Gabriel's been suspended for four one-day internationals, which is a result in and of itself, but is it significant of something else? Because, I, again, I suspect if you went back even as recently as 20 years and there was an exchange like that on a cricket field, and I'm pretty sure there were exchanges like that on cricket fields, uh, very little would have been done about it, and I think the stance Joe Root took would have been regarded as somewhat eccentric. Oh, I think it's a real mark of the change of time, uh, the changing times. Although the England cricket captain sort of mumbled, I, um, I, I think this is all a big fuss over nothing. So not everybody has quite caught up. But the idea that somebody would be suspended for four days and have seventy-five percent of their match fee forfeited. For actually, you said a, ho- a volley of homophobic abuse. So the reports I've read were that it was less than that. It was, "What's the matter? Why are you looking at me like that? Do you like boys?" It could, well, that's a very small volley, you could yeah. argue. <laughs> but it, 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 it wasn't the sort of abuse that uh, you and I might have been familiar with a few years ago. So it just shows you what a marker it is that a, a, a relatively anodyne bit of abuse results in quite a stiff punishment and Joe Root who as you say would have been perhaps laughed at is seen as a very praiseworthy figure and obviously it's a good thing but it's a surprising thing at the speed you were mentioning before the speed these things are happening it is happening a great deal I don't know what happens the the other problem or issue is on cricket we can generally hear what's going on because there are microphones in the wickets um, we don't hear exchanges for example between footballers I just wonder but what we might hear if, if we did we do hear about them more than we used to though we do but for example there were recently uh, one footballer alleged made alleged that he was racially abused by the other footballer the case was not proven because although most people who knew saw it was it, it was probably the case these things unless you've got the microphones are one person's word against another difficult to prove uh, stephanie is this a realm in which it's possible do you think to be unequivocally optimistic is is the momentum only going one way on this 50 years from now will the developed world regard these discussions as curious as the you know as as curiously as we do about conversations that might have happened 70 or 80 years ago about whether women should be allowed to vote? Well, I guess it really depends on on where in the world you are. So, um, as as we said, in in Western Europe, the the development has been very fast. But in other uh, countries, even in Europe, there's actually the reverse. uh, Politics are going on also in in Hungary and, and other parts. Uh, and also crimes against uh, or homophobic crimes are are uh, rising so i'm i'm not quite sure um it yeah whether it's japan or the us or whether you go to western europe so i don't think while women's women's vote and women's rights is a different matter i think these are culturally very deeply rooted questions and so they are more difficult to develop than than other ones Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, with Stephanie Bolson and Ivor Gaber. Do stay tuned. What is it like to be a city forgotten and rediscovered? Monocle Films travels to Gunsan in South Korea to bear witness to its urban revival. Here, natives and newcomers are creating quirky bars, art spaces and a bright future for this charming coastal outpost. Gunsan, building on the past, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. 
Tune in to the Monocle Daily on Monocle 24 weekdays at 2200 London time. We unpack the stories that have been dominating the discussion in Europe and North America and set the agenda for a new day in Asia. The show features regular insights and analysis from Monocle's bureau in Toronto and New York, special guests there and across the Americas, as well as experts and analysts at our studios in London. Whether it's industry-focused reports on anything from art and architecture to business and entertainment, or a light-hearted guide to how to spend the perfect weekend in a great city somewhere in the world, you're in good hands. Monocle's network of global correspondents are your guides. Join our team every weekday for the Monocle Daily on Monocle 24. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Stephanie Bolson and Ivor Gaber. There is little the media enjoys more than anguished discussion of how the media will survive in the online age, and it's not exclusively because we want to keep our jobs. Media, in particular independent media, performs, at least in theory, a role as vital as it is precarious, holding to account those who might otherwise be left unaccountable. There have been a couple of possible steps forward this week. The EU has unveiled a new draft deal which will compel online platforms to share revenue with some of those whose work they cannibalise. And here in the UK, the CanCross review has suggested that the likes of Facebook and Google be overseen by a regulator and for an institute of public interest news. Um, Ivor, let's look at the CanCross review suggestions first. The the idea of imposing a regulator on Facebook, Google, et al. Is that overdue? It is, um, it is not an overall regulator, but certainly what they're seeking to do is certainly worth supporting. I, I do think that Facebook and Google in particular have been brilliant for providing us all with news, but has done severe damage to the news industry in this country and other countries. So any attempt to rein that in, if you like, to regulate it, to say that there has to be some sort of payment between Google on Facebook and the major news sources has to be a good thing. You know, journalists need to, as, as we would all agree, need to live, live. They need to be paid. And at the moment, much of their work is being consumed by people who don't pay for it. Uh, Stephanie, the, if, if we look at this in conjunction with this, this new thing being proposed by the EU, are, are we seeing a wider catching up uh, of legislation with the, the social media platforms? Well, certainly on the European level now for some years, actually, they have, have been trying to get a grip on the question of copyright and intellectual property. So how do you actually charge the big giants for using intellectual property, making money with it and not paying the people who actually have uh, generated the, the content? Um, and it's, it's, it's vitally important to find, to find a tool there because on the one hand... Um, as much politicians as society is complaining that there is fake news, that there is not enough quality journalism. But if journalists work for free and can't get, especially freelance journalists, and can't get the money back, they, they need to find another job, bluntly speaking. There is a, there's a problem. I discuss this issue broadly with my children or my students, both the same generation. They say, no, it will never work. This is a this is the generation that has been brought up expecting access to films, to newspapers, to books, to everything for free. 
and you'll never they'll just find ways around it they say so i do think there's a generational issue here that we expect to pay for things yeah but it's not the generation to pay it's the it's the uh, platforms to pay but eventually the, it, it would have a knock on effect would it not yeah but i think i mean uh, you, you you need to find a way there and um in germany for example we have a system um that has been in place for for decades actually which is that you have a collective authority that um that charges uh, like for press reviews or for other other content providers who actually take uh, papers and articles and then redistribute them and they have to all to pay in a big pot and then once a year it's paid out to the authors and it does work it really does work now talking about the european legislation i looked at this a little bit it sounds really good but it's still far away from being implemented so there's still a chance that um, it's now only um, approved by the european parliament it needs to go through the council there's a lot of lobbying going mm. on and even if they then adopt it it will take at least another two years to be implemented and then money going to freelance authors so sounds good but still far well, away I, the german model is very interesting and there are other scandinavian no models i read a very interesting proposal i'm just trying to remember from a pressure a campaigning group here that said that one way around this this issue this is in terms of news is that every citizen presumably every registered voter gets a notional 200 pounds a year to spend on media and they can spread it across all the media they like Or they can give it. This money would come from the Fangs, the Facebooks, the, the Googles and so forth. And they can notionally pay all of the chunk to develop or they can spread it across the media. And I, I think that's quite an interesting proposition. It's the market. It's enacting but giving people choice and a sustainable model well there are models that are working for example the guardian here the, the british guardian that asks their users mm. to give actually a donation and many people do because many people appreciate mm. independent journalism and more and more in in, the, in in these days where you don't really know where your news are coming from i was surprised they got a million they have a million people um, and a few of us actually subscribe in the old-fashioned way but the fact that people voluntarily give give them money has surprised me and pleased me okay well let's move finally tonight back to the uk a country which is again doing a creditable impression of a couple arguing over whose turn it is to take the bins out while their house burns down around them with barely six weeks to go until brexit and with no firm decisions yet made on what that's actually going to mean much of the public discourse of the last 24 hours has been consumed for reasons which don't really bear explanation by an argument over whether it's acceptable to eat jam displaying traces of mold and whether whether Winston Churchill was a hero or a villain. At the risk of preempting the discussion, the correct answers are respectively no, and a bit from column A and a bit from column B. Um, we will move on to both those vital topics shortly, but Ivor, first of all, that there has been breaking news in the last few minutes from uh, the Houses of Parliament. <coughs> there there in indeed has. It's, it's not significant, and it is significant, which is, probably sums up Brexit. Oh, good. But Mrs May's government has yet again lost another vote she was hoping to go back to brussels with a renewed mandate to reinforce the sort of coalition she's cobbled together a few weeks ago to say look parliament's right behind me um, but it didn't work that way a combination of what we call the hard brexiteers the people who want to britain just to leave to walk away and the remainers who want us to stay 
combined together, she lost by 45 votes, which is a significant number. And her She's position, had worse. <laughs> she has had worse. But nonetheless, it has weakened her position significantly. If there were to be any negotiations, frankly, I don't know what the negotiations were going to be about, because the European Commission has made it quite clear there's nothing to talk about. Nonetheless, she is yet again hobbled. She has made a major misjudgment. This is cock-up. This is cock-up. It was a terrible motion that enabled both the Remainers and the Brexiteers to unite against it. And so she goes back to Brussels, maybe a diminished, a yet a further diminished woman. Stephanie, how, how is Britain's long cultivated reputation for stolid common sense governance looking from the continent right now? Um, well, how, how can I reply <laughs> to that in a polite way? Um, I, I think, I think um, uh, people often ask me here, are, are we becoming the laughing stock of, of Europe? I don't think it's, it's that bad. I think it's more that um, people on the continent just get impatient and, if I may say again, irritated because nothing is moving and there is this big brick wall and you feel like Britain is on a, on a train and it's a speeding towards that brick wall and whatever happens, they will just crash into that wall. Um, and talking about that, um, whether Theresa May is now weaker than before and the Europeans are surprised, they're not surprised. They're looking at this, they have been looking at this for two years and they always knew what the problem is in the in the parliament, that there are two extremes, that they cannot find an agreement and that Europe should not uh, offer any uh, very, very substantial compromises because they will get nothing in return. What, what I find surprising and pathetic is the Brexiteers saying we must not take no deal off the table because it will weaken our negotiating position. What negotiating position? It's like a man holding a gun to his head and saying, if you don't give me what I want, I'm going to pull the trigger. Uh, laughing stock, not just on the substance that we don't know what we want. We don't even know how to go about getting it. it yeah, but you know, if you start, if you start um, calling uh, or laughing at Britain, you actually go on the very same low level that the extremists on both sides are here. So I think, I think it is just in the interest yeah. of Europe to stay very matter of fact and not be emotional about it. Because at the end of the day, this is not an emotional <laughs> topic, but is very very serious and no mm. deal will hit the Europeans it will hit German industry yes but it will hit this country much worse but to, to recalibrate this edition of Midori House to the crucial topics uh, of the last 24 hours I'll, I'll ask you first Ivor Moldy Jam where, where are you on that do you do you, I, I should reiterate that this is apparently you a story from oh god it's exhausting it was, it, it was from cabinet, cabinet uh, Theresa May the Prime Minister saying that, that were there a small amount of mould on the jam she, th th this must have been a metaphor for something uh, it would not put her off she would merely scrape the jam to the mould rather it to one side it was talking about food waste they were talking about food waste exactly so they were um, I, I think she said she would scrape the mould away and eat the jam but actually I'm starting to wonder well I'm of the I'm of the school that said stir it in nobody's going to notice you stir the mould in <laughs> but I don't need I make sure I don't get the bit but you stir it in and get it to the bottom nobody will notice I think it's good for your digestion well actually yeah? I thought mould was quite healthy for you is that not the case oh, I, I, I don't it's know full of microbes and, and things you know people pay rather large months that's, that's worse than scraping it away Ivor that's appalling behaviour you just stir the mould in and then serve it to somebody else I'm just hoping nobody I have for dinner is listening there's to this there's another, another Brexit metaphor right there um Stephanie, where, where are you on the on the on? I can't believe I'm asking these questions on, on the on the mouldy jam. Thing. On the mouldy jam. Actually, before I came to Britain, I was far more relaxed about these things. I would scrap 
the mold off. And then, no, I would not do that, but I would still eat the, the jam. Since I've come here and be become part of this nanny state here where everyone is obsessed <laughs> about health and safety and that you have to take your kids to school every day and I don't know what they tell you on the tube on a poster that you have please to sneeze into a tissue because otherwise you will spread your, your bacteria in the tube as if that wasn't common sense. Now, I've become a bit more aware of that maybe maybe I would... Well, my husband would tell me to throw away that gem and we would probably end up in a row about it. But your husband is right. Although six weeks from now, you might be he might be wishing he'd kept more of it. We'll eat anything. Exactly. <laughs> um, we, we've got about 30 seconds each, therefore, to address the hero or villain aspect of Winston Churchill. Uh, Ivor, as, as one of Churchill's fellow Englishmen, I'll let, I'll let you go first. Can I just very quickly say, I cannot believe a very competent politician like John McDonnell, as he is a very competent politician, would be so foolish well. as to answer that question. Uh, this is John McDonnell, the Shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer, who, the who, yep. who was asked the question That's about it. Churchill, hero or villain, and answered villain. Um, unfortunately, the person who asked him that question didn't report, retort, rather, now do Mao. Um, but no, Churchill was both. He, he, in his before he was the great war leader, and I think nobody can take that away from him. He was responsible for some heinous um, statements and some heinous behaviour. Home Secretary, he turned the troops out on the striking miners in Wales. So he was both. He may not have been entirely down and to him. he was the man who, in the 1945 election campaign after the war, um, called the opposition Labour Party the Gestapo. You know, he was both. Uh, as an Australian, of course, I have Gallipoli to thank him for. Mm. Uh, Stephanie? As a German, I obviously wouldn't dare saying that Churchill was a villain. Um, but I think it's just interesting. I actually quite think it's an interesting discussion to, to look at Churchill a bit more thoroughly and say what's, what are the, the dark sides of this man. Well, that nuanced take, if sadly lacking from the discourse elsewhere in the last 24 hours, does bring us to the end of today's show. Stephanie Bolson and Ivor Gaber, thank you for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Marcus Hippie, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Teresa Marvulli. Our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. Music next at 1900. It's The Urbanist with Andrew Tuck. I'm back with more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at 1800 London time tomorrow. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. <laughs>